Brothers and sisters, we have made it to the end of the book of Acts. All right. Woohoo! Yeah, it's exciting. And uh, we're probably all ready for the finish line. But you're probably not nearly as ready for the end as the Apostle Paul was when he finally made it to Rome. He had been in prison in Caesarea for two years. We haven't even had the coronavirus around for two years yet. Imagine how long Paul's imprisonment felt like. Two years. Now he's been on a boat, now he's been traveling, and now he finally makes it to Rome in the final chapter of 28. His journey obviously has been much longer than 28 weeks. He's had many stops along the way, but now he's made it. And now that we are at the end of our sermon series, uh, I want to review what I think are some of the most important lessons from the book of Acts that we can take with us as we leave this wonderful book. So these are Nate's five most important lessons from the book of Acts. And the first is this. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Lord of the world. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Lord of the world. This book began in Jerusalem with a group of Jewish believers, disciples. And the message throughout the entire book has been consistent. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ of Israel. Messiah means anointed one. And the king of Israel would be anointed for his office. And people in Jesus' Jesus' day, they understood that the Messiah was to be the king of Israel. That's why Jesus, he was crucified under what title? This is the king of the Jews, right? The Messiah. And in the first sermon of the church, Peter gets up and he shows, he proves from the scriptures that Jesus is this promised one. He quotes the prophet Joel and he quotes the Psalms. And he shows that Jesus is this promised one. We see how Philip, he meets the Ethiopian official who's reading Isaiah. And he says to him, this is the one who is prophesied about by Isaiah. And Paul did this everywhere he went, did he not? Where did Paul usually start in his missionary journey? The synagogue. He would go into the synagogue and reason with the Jews there why Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. And so the apostles and the early church They took great pains to show that Jesus is consistent with everything promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He is actually the fulfillment of the scriptures and of Israel's calling and story. He is the fulfillment of every promise and every prophecy in the Old Testament. Yes, he is the Messiah raised from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, it tells us of his his ascension which is not a departure to outer space, friends. No, it's an ascension to a throne, to the throne of this world where Jesus now reigns as Lord and King. And while Jesus, he is only bodily present for the first part of Acts, the first chapter, but make no mistake, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Lord, he is present in every chapter of the book and he is present right now. In fact, Luke began the book of Acts as a sequel to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. In the very first verse of Acts, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So therefore, 
Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension. But how is Jesus continuing his mission if he's no longer bodily present on the earth? Well, that's why very early on in the story we get Acts 2, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is now poured out. And how is the Holy Spirit at work? Well, through the people he indwells. And so I like to say that the, the title of this book, this book, this title, Acts, whose Acts are we talking about? And there's been debate about that, but I think the most faithful answer is it's the Acts of Jesus continued through the Spirit-empowered church. We see the unity of Jesus in the Spirit working through his people in this book. And Jesus is still reigning invisibly as the Lord of heaven and earth. And so, as our dear friend Paul has faced all of these various kings and leaders and officials, as he stood before various thrones, he's not afraid. He's not afraid at all. Though at times he was, the Lord would encourage him. But in Acts 28, John Stott says, Paul was awaiting the emperor's pleasure, but he knew that the supreme authority to whom he bowed was not the Lord Caesar, but the Lord Christ. So in Acts, we see it preached again and again. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Lord. He's the king. Do you know him? Do you know him as your king, as your Lord? The second lesson from the book of Acts is the promised Holy Spirit empowers us. The promised Holy Spirit empower, empowers us. Now, when people think of Acts, they usually think of Pentecost, uh, how the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, men and women, young and old, your sons and daughters, that they would prophesy, meaning they would be able to have this communion and connection with God to hear from him and to proclaim it to others. And so we need to remember, friends, that we are Pentecostals. <laughs> okay, now I don't mean the denomination Pentecostal. But all of us, we are Pentecostal Christians. We believe, do we not, in the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us? We believe that God lives in each believer. We believe he empowers the church. We believe God can still do miracles today, and he is still doing miracles. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in his spirit. We believe that we can receive guidance and wisdom and prophetic words that build up the church and the body of Christ. Because the same spirit that empowered these believers in Acts, that spirit empowers us today. And so friends, I want you to live in a holy awareness that God's spirit is in you and with you. In fact, that is one of the six covenant affirmations. There's only six of them. But one is this. We affirm a conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We want to be consciously aware of our dependence upon the Holy Spirit's leadership in our individual lives and as a church. And one of the things that stood out to me about the Holy Spirit's empowerment is, yes, we do see these miracles, we do see these amazing, wonderful things that we believe can still happen. But yet we also see the Holy Spirit empowering people with courage, with Holy Spirit-empowered courage. We saw that sometimes God rescues people from these uh, horrible things that happen, these trials, these persecutions. 
uh, but also we see him sustain his people through trials, through persecution, through shipwrecks. And we aren't always told why, why God is sovereign in one way or the other, but we are, in, we are told in, in many ways to take courage, to take courage because God's spirit is with us. And the church needed bold courage to continue to proclaim the gospel in the midst of all of the persecution and opposition they faced. And so when you think about the Holy Spirit, I want you to think about many things, but I also want you to remember Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, that's after Peter and John are, are, are thrown into prison, they're persecuted by the Sanhedrin, the church prays. And the church says, Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So yes, let's be bold to pray for signs and wonders. Let's be bold to pray for those things. But don't forget that one of the most wondrous, miraculous things of all is a boldness to share your faith in Jesus, no matter what, no matter what happens. And we need the Spirit's power for that, don't we? So let's be bold and pray, Lord, give me boldness. Give me a great boldness beyond my own power so that every day I live as a witness to you. So would you boldly pray for the Spirit to do that in you? Nate's third lesson from the book of Acts, is the church is a family team on mission. We've talked about this several times in this series. Uh, the end of Acts chapter 2, it's one of my personal favorite passages in the Bible. It's that wonderful, somewhat idealistic picture of the church where they're, they're eating together, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Every day they met in the temple courts and everyone gave of what they had and to anyone who had need. And they were praising God and every day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Gosh, isn't that amazing? It inspires me. We recognize that this is a family team on a mission. And we recognize that the apostles, they played uh, in a, a unique uh, role, a very important role. And because of that, uh, especially Peter and Paul, they are given uh, a large amount of the attention uh, in the book of Acts. But let's never forget that there was a massive team of people dedicated to the mission of God together. They, it was a team that accomplished the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul had at least 80 to 90 co-workers that are named in the New Testament. 80 to 90! And that doesn't include all of the unnamed people that are just members of these churches all around the world. But we do know many of their names. Priscilla and Aquila, Luke, Timothy, Apollos, Lydia, Phoebe, Eodia and Syntyche, Epaphras, Silas, Barnabas, John Mark. If someone wrote a story, like Luke did, about the church called Faith Covenant in South Wheaton. Where does your name appear? What role would you like to play? What role would you like to have in this great story that God is writing? 
And we learn from the book of Acts that the church, it's a family team on mission. And everyone is working together for this great mission and cause. Nate's fourth lesson from the book of Acts is Jesus is reconciling all nations into the kingdom of God. He's reconciling all nations into the kingdom. And this is one of the most dominant themes uh, of Acts is that God is welcoming all people, all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes and tongues into the kingdom of Jesus. In this story, the book of Acts, it contains many instances of how people overcome previous racism, classism, and prejudice to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God. And recently, I had what I consider to be a personal little theological breakthrough. I, I had a little insight recently. And I, I may be a pastor and I have a master's of divinity, but I haven't mastered divinity yet by any means. I'm still learning things. I hope you know that. And uh, I had uh, just, I was thinking about, I'm thinking about Genesis because that's where we're going after this sermon series. And I was reading about, thinking about the fall. And most Christians talk about the fall happening in Genesis 3, right? Where Adam and Eve disobey and the curse comes on the world and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And as we've been talking about Genesis and confirmation with, with Pastor Tom and Jessica, uh, I've been thinking about this, how really the fall kind of continues all the way through Genesis 11. That the world gets more violent and violent, so God has to send this destructive flood. But even that doesn't fix things and things keep getting worse. Where finally you get to kind of the climax of this first part of Genesis, which is the Tower of Babel. Where it's the people are building this, this tower to make a name for themselves. And so God has to come in and the consequence of this is that the people of the world are scattered. They are divided. They are given different languages. They are separated one from another. And then it's in Genesis 12 where God begins his restoration project where he calls Abra Abram to have a people for his name so that what? So that the blessing of God would go out to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through you and this family. So God wants to reverse this curse of division in the world. And then we get to Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost and people are there from all the different nations and they what? They hear the gospel in their own language. And they're invited into this kingdom. And so Babel is beginning to be reversed. And now the nations are invited to come together as one through Jesus, the Messiah and Lord. Isn't that beautiful? What God is doing? And so Acts is sending the message that because of Jesus, all the nations, all the Gentiles, they're all invited to become one people. And so Acts is just the beginning of God reconciling the nations in Jesus. And I think one of the most surprising things for me that I, I learned in this series was what happens in Acts chapter 8. What I refer to as the Samaritan Pentecost. Where the church in Jerusalem, they hear that some Samaritan believers have, or some, some Samaritans have come to faith in Christ. And so they ask the Apostle John to go lay hands on the Samaritans. And do you remember this? Remember what Luke wrote about earlier? There was a dispute with some Samaritans back in the Gospel of Luke. And John and James, they asked Jesus, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven and destroy them? 
Lord, do you want us to kill him? Lord, should we take him out? It says in Luke that Jesus rebuked them. I would love to know what Jesus said. Put them in their place. But now, fast forward many years later, in that same John, who wanted to call fire down from heaven, the church sends him out. Yes, to call fire down from heaven. What a totally different kind. The fire of the Holy Spirit to now make them one family in Jesus Christ. Wow. Man, I'm about to tear up over here. The gospel of Jesus is reconciling the nations, the races, the ethnicities, the tribes, the tongues, the genders, the classes into one family of God where everyone is equal in the body of Christ. And we see countless examples of this over and over again in Acts. I'll just name a few. We have Philip, who shares the gospel with the Ethiopian official, who's going to take it back to his country. In Acts chapter 10, we have Peter, who goes to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And it's at that time where Peter finally realizes, now, oh, just now, the Gentiles, the nations, they're fully included in the kingdom. And then Acts 13, that's when the missionary journey of Paul begins, where he's sent out by the multi-ethnic leadership team of the church in Antioch. And then we have Acts 15. Remember the Jerusalem council, where the church says the Gentiles, they don't have to become Jews in order to be in this kingdom. They can be saved just as they are through faith in Christ. And all the men said hallelujah, amen. And now, here we are in Acts 28. Paul is in the heart of the empire, sharing the gospel with all who would come. Still, he speaks to the Jews there. He still would love to see his, kins, his, his kinsmen come to the faith in Christ. But even if they sadly reject it, all the nations are invited in. And we know that this is where God is taking the world, right? That one day, when heaven and earth are united, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be praising Jesus around the throne. That's where God is taking this whole thing redeeming the curse, redeeming the fall, redeeming Babel, redeeming all of these divisions of humanity. And so what is our job until that day? We are to be those who try to bring the future into the present, where God is taking the world into now, the vision into a reality, that we would be agents of reconciliation, inviting people into the kingdom of Jesus where all can live as one family. And so reconciliation it does not mean that we get to ignore the problems of justice, inequality, or racism that come up in the world. No, it means we pursue loving all of our neighbors well and learning what it means to pursue justice, to pursue mercy, and to live together as one family wherever we are. And so friends, I still believe, I still believe that the church actually has what this divided world needs. We have Jesus Christ and his reconciling power. In the, book, in the book of Acts, we are taught that God is wanting and is, God is at work reconciling all the nations into himself. And so friends, if this is what Jesus is doing, then how do we partner with him? The book of Acts, the acts of Jesus continued through who? The spirit-empowered church. So if this is what Jesus is doing, how do we partner with him? And finally, Nate's fifth lesson, Nate's final lesson from the book of Acts. is The early church was innocent and we all await the judgment of Jesus. 
Now, I was kind of unsure of how to phrase this point. It kind of is a weird phrasing. But there have been an unusual number of trial and court scenes in this book. Has there not? It's been a dizzying array of all kinds of, of trials where the church is standing before leaders. And so we have to ask, why did Luke include all this material about these different courtroom scenes? And in some ways, they function as an apologetic to anybody in that time who might read this book and say, you know what, the church is not a, a threat. The church is not a subversive entity. It is a group of people who, who worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we also have to ask, why did Acts end like it did today? I mean, wasn't it, it kind of a, a little bit of a letdown? Like we've been hearing about Rome for like seven weeks. And when he gets to Rome and we don't get to hear anything about Caesar? We don't get to, we've heard all of these other trials. We don't get to hear anything about his trial before the Caesar. But why did this, why did this end like this? And so there's debate about why Acts ends like it does. Some people say, well, Luke know, knows what happens to Paul, but he simply doesn't share it because he has a theological point he wants to, to get across, that the, you know, the message is continuing and it's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. Okay, that's That's possible. Uh, you know, some people say that Luke intended to write a third volume, that there'd be Luke, Acts, and a third, um, and that he wasn't able to get to it for some reason. But if I can offer my own thought, I think N.T. Wright is correct when he says, I think it is much more likely that Luke was writing this book quite deliberately in order for it to be the primary, detailed, and very powerful evidence available for when Paul himself came before Caesar. And so it seems, as I've, I, as I've read it, it seems that while Paul was in prison for that two years in Caesarea, that Luke was beginning to compile all the notes for this book. And perhaps also while uh, Paul was in Rome. And that he's preparing this book as a witness to say, Paul is not a threat to the Roman order. Because remember, the strategy of the Jewish leaders was to get people to think that uh, the Christians are a threat to Caesar that they say there is another king, there is another Lord. And they're, they're trying to get them to, to see that or to think that the Christians are a threat to the social and political order of the day. But Luke is careful to show again and again that this is not the case. It's the church's chief apostle. He is innocent of these accused crimes. And the church teaches love of enemy, submission to authorities. And Paul has even been very submissive himself to this long, drawn-out, unjust, false accusation process. He has gone along with it. And so by all these courtroom scenes, Paul, the gospel, and the church, they are vindicated because no one finds anything wrong with them. And so the reason that Paul and others could stand before all of these judges and all of these false accusations is because, as I said a few weeks ago, they were living for the one court hearing that actually matters. They knew who the judge on the throne was and is. And they continually remind people, even to these rulers, that judgment is coming. And though you may be a judge right now, there is a true judge who sits on the throne of one day we will all give account before him. And so if, we want to, if you want to be ready for that day, you need to get right with the one who is king the one who is Messiah, the one who will be Lord and judge over all. And that is Jesus of Nazareth, 
who is raised from the dead. So I ask you, friend, are you right with him this morning? As we sang in that song, when that day when the trumpet sounds, when we stand before the throne, will you be ready? Dress in his righteousness alone. So let me recap. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Lord. The Holy Spirit empowers us. The church is a family team on mission. Jesus is reconciling all the nations into the kingdom of God. And the early church was innocent of all of their accused crimes. And one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So the book of Acts has reached its conclusion. But the mission and the story, they're continuing actually right now. Right now, the story is continuing. And so like Paul, each one of us, as it says in chapter 28, we are all called to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And Jesus is continuing his work through the Spirit-empowered church. That's us. So we get to join in. And so if you put yourself into the narrative, friends, you can trust that everything that you do will have eternal significance. And everything that happens to you will somehow be used in God's great redemptive story. Because even Paul's trials and even his imprisonments and all of the horrible things that happened to him, all of it, God reversed it. And it led to the spread of the gospel all the more. In fact, he wrote several of his letters while he was in prison. They tried to stop the gospel, but they couldn't. And so if you are in Christ, you are caught up in this great story where God is redeeming the world and everything you do can be written into this great adventure. Remember that Jesus is the true hero of this story. He's the hero of the Bible. He's the hero of the book of Acts. He's the hero of our lives. And I just want to conclude with this quote from N.T. Wright. It's a, it's a little bit lengthier than usual, but it's, it's all good. And he says, The book of Acts has been about Jesus of Nazareth continuing to do and to teach, continuing to to announce the kingdom of God which has been decisively inaugurated on earth as in heaven. Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah and Lord, through his servants, through their journeys and trials, through their pains and their puzzles and their sufferings, and their shipwrecks, still reaching out into the future, out beyond Rome and the first century, out across the tracks of time and geography, still confronting men, women, and children, rulers, disabled people, local authorities, artisans, governors of islands, wandering tent makers, philosophers in the marketplace, and young men nodding off on the windowsill. Luke has brought them all before us, in a dazzling display, both of writing and of theology, drawing us in, reminding us once more that this is a drama in in which we ourselves have been called to belong to the cast. The journey is ours. The trials and vindication are ours. The sovereign presence of Jesus is ours. The story is ours to pick up and to carry on. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end. But in his end, is our beginning. Amen? Amen.